Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday, the 26th of October. Tom Tilley and Antoinette Latouf with you. A day after the big budget was handed down by Labor, it was their first. And to put it simply, the outlook for the budget is pretty grim. Restraint is the name of the game in this budget. Uh, Restraint is what defines this budget. That's Treasurer Jim Chalmers there. And Tom, I did hear the words restraint and responsible time and time again as he handed down his first budget as Treasurer. Yeah, one of the other key words was inflation, which really shaped this budget. Uh, They were really careful not to spend too much extra money to stoke inflation. So there were no big new cost of living measures beyond the childcare paid parental leave and cheaper medicines, which they'd already announced. And those changes will take years to kick in. It recognises that our best defence against uncertainty around the world is responsible economic management here at home. That's right, Tom. There weren't that many surprises, but here's a bit of welcome news because we learnt that there was almost $150 billion extra revenue than forecast, and that's thanks to higher gas and coal prices. And that meant this budget only went $37 billion into the red, and it was expected to be more than double that. So that was the best news of the whole budget. Um, Some more of the bad news. Electricity prices are expected to go up by more than 50% over the next two years, and higher interest rates are going to push up the cost of government debt and the NDIS's costs are completely Mm. blowing out. There was an interesting promise which we foreshadowed yesterday to build a million new homes over five years um, and that was uh, involving the private sector and the superannuation sector in that investment as well. So those are some of the big headlines and the top line takeaways from last night's budget but we will be taking a closer look later in the show. The jury in the Bruce Lim and sexual assault trial have not been able to reach a verdict. So yesterday, after more than four days of deliberation, the 12 jurors said they could not agree on a unanimous verdict. So, Tom, the the judge called the jurors back into the courtroom and essentially asked them to take more time and and actually said, hit the gym, walk the dog, do whatever you need to do, get some respite from this arduous task. Yeah, so they've been... Doing that overnight, presumably, and they'll be back in the room deliberating on this decision today. Um, Bruce Learman, of course, has pleaded not guilty to assaulting former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins at Parliament House in 2019. So, Tom, she explained also why judges are usually reluctant to discharge a jury because it has been shown that they can often agree if they're given more time. And there's been a huge twist in one of Australia's most high-profile gay hate crimes... So in January, Scott Philip White confessed to the 1988 murder of Scott Johnson, whose body was found at the bottom of the cliffs in Manly, and the family had been waiting years for that moment. He was sentenced to eight years. But then yesterday, a Sydney appeal court heard that White claims his confession wasn't genuine and he only did it because he was worried about his wife coming after him. So his barrister says it's in the interest of justice of the court to allow the cognitively impaired man to withdraw his plea and allow the matter to go to trial. And the appeal hearing will continue today. And Adidas has dropped Yee, formerly known as Kanye West, over his offensive remarks, uh, the latest of which have targeted Jewish people. 
So the company said in a statement, Adidas does not tolerate anti-Semitism and any other sort of hate speech. And the sportswear company has said it's expected to lose around $390 million of its net income this year because of the move. Um, so, Tom, just quickly, he'd been recently banned from Twitter and Instagram. His talent agency, CAA, dropped him and a documentary about the rapper has also been shelved. So speculation... Um, was mounting about Adidas and also Pressure, um, who are one of his most sort of his biggest business relationships. And today the news is they have decided to formally step away. Yeah. So to look at some of the things he's done recently, he wore a White Lives Matter t-shirt to a fashion show in Paris earlier this month, and that's a slogan linked to white supremacy. Rapper Sean Diddy Coombs then posted a video on Instagram saying he didn't support the shirt, um, to which Yee posted a screenshot of a conversation with Diddy and suggested that he was controlled by Jewish people. Uh, then he made claims Jewish people hold immeasurable power in the media. On Twitter, he said he's going to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. So he's rolling out these mm. ho- horrific tropes uh, about a Jewish conspiracy to control the world. Yeah, it's awful. Um, and I don't know, he's, the guy's just a fucking narcissistic sociopath, in my opinion. He just He just won't stop. Yeah, I mean, he's also mentally ill. Um, He says he's been diagnosed with bipolar. And I think that's a tricky thing. He seems to go on these these crazy rants and this time he's gone way too far. And I think each each time he sort of goes really rogue with these statements, you wonder, oh, is he... Is he just doing this to court publicity? Is he making some sort of Mm. calculated decision to be controversial to create headlines? And we've had that conversation many times over the years. Has he gone too far? Is it related to his mental health? Uh, But this time he seems to really have crossed the line um, Mm. and essentially he's putting himself out of business. Yeah, look, and I do... I don't want to sound too insensitive. If, if he is grappling mental health issues, then he has all the resources to go and get help and support and step away from his from his phone and step you know step away from these big business deals. If you're making documentaries, um, I don't know I question how mentally unsound are you? Um, and if you are, then spend that time and energy not creating White Lives Matter T-shirts um, or saying awful things about the Jewish population. Invest that in getting help. All right, in a moment we're going deep on the budget. All right, let's get deep on last night's budget and we'll try and pull out some of the most interesting parts of it for you. What were your um, initial reactions, Antoinette? Oh, mainly that it was probably the least surprising and most leaked budget ever. Most of the main announcements we already knew, either because of election promises or because it had been discussed in recent weeks. Um, also that I think Australians are going to be pretty forgiving about this kind of very kind of safe, um, not very exciting or generous budget because of all the external factors like the impending global recession, the war in Ukraine, the pandemic. I reckon most people are going to be like, oh, a lot of that's out of our control and we have to just try and weather it and you know, as best we can. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was a really sensible budget, but not necessarily a brave budget. So they had almost that $150 billion of extra revenue, which they've essentially banked rather than spent. And I think that's a really good thing and, you know, a necessary thing in a high inflation environment. But they didn't make any really brave cuts that will help get us out of this huge debt that's piling up. 
But this is only a mini budget. It comes after the election. We'll get a full budget in May. So they might be saving some of the tougher decisions for Mm. that point. So we've been, I guess, following the budget speech last night, reading all the coverage. Um, Someone who's actually poured through the thousands of pages of documents that came out yesterday is Tom McElroy. Um, He's a political reporter at the Australian Financial Review. He's based in Canberra. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. When you read through the papers, what stood out to you? I think Jim Chalmers faces a pretty tough set of numbers as he delivers his first federal budget. He's warning Australians that there are hard days to come. That's a reflection of a pretty poor international outlook coming down the tube for Australia. Labor's got huge debt and deficit to manage, uh, and they've got uh, a lot of election promises and expensive ones to implement. So they're mm. kind of stuck in this in this puzzle, um, and it's going to be difficult to deliver budgets going forward. So they bank this extra revenue rather than spend it. So that seems like a very disciplined and, and a smart thing to do in a time where we don't want to you know, spend lots of extra money and spur extra inflation. But would you agree that it seemed to lack any other tough decisions to help rein in spending in the long term and to fix that structural deficit? Yeah, this was a more limited budget than we're used to here in Canberra. Labor had two or three big election promises they wanted to get started on, but the rest was about pulling back spending announced by the previous government and starting the very difficult challenge of righting the ship on things like debt and deficit. Jim Chalmers is using some of the money that he's getting from this commodities boom to um, begin that task. But this is going to be a whole of government, whole of Labor's term challenge. Depending on how long they're in office for, all of his budgets are going to have some of this um, repayment and restructuring and pulling back that we saw last night. But did they do any of that last night, really? Did they cut down on this long-term spending in some of the key areas or did they just bank the extra money? They banked the extra money and they started talking about very difficult budget challenges like the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mm. Um, they've, they've cut infrastructure projects and other wastes and rorts. And I think there are a few signs that they're going to be um, disciplined uh, cost managers going forward. But don't forget, we're only six months from the election. They're really only just getting their head around the state of the national books and, and what they can do to improve them. So let's talk about the NDIS and that cost blowout, but also in some aspect, the exploitation of the NDIS by fraudsters. That came up last night and it's a bit of a hot mess because how fraught is it to have to, to pit the interests of the one in five Australians who live with a disability against the interest of taxpayers, given and both have genuine grievances. It's a wicked task and you wouldn't uh, want it on uh, your agenda. Bill Shorten and Jim Chalmers face the prospect of the National Disability Insurance Scheme costing as much as $102 billion a year. That would eclipse the age pension and become the most expensive social program in the budget. They've started this program of driving out fraud and waste in the system, and they're trying to pull it back while keeping their commitment, keeping Labor's commitment to people with a disability and their families, that standards will improve and that they'll have every opportunity to live a good life. It's a huge cost centre in the budget. It's growing very rapidly, uh, but Labor believe in it and they want to do the right thing by the system and by the people who rely on it. Well, Labor brought it in, and I imagine it's kind of potentially easier for a Labor government to, to be tough on the NDIS and the, the coalition who'd be portrayed as being heartless for cutting in on it. Do you think, in a way, they are the right people for 
the job and they will be able to sell tough decisions on the NDIS? Yeah, I think Bill Shorten in particular has real authority with people who rely on the NDIS and the sector that's grown around it. I think the panel that he's put in place to review the scheme, including Bruce Bonahady, one of the architects of the NDIS, um, have the same authority. Um, now, that being said, he's got to look Jim Chalmers in the eye and say, none of this money is being wasted. We've got rid of fraud. We've got this system back on track. Um, and that's going to be a, a, a multi-year process. And we're going to be hearing about the NDIS a lot in budgets to and not only in, in budgets to come with the Disability Royal Commission and those findings expected next year, isn't it going to be difficult to rein in the spending given that we're going to get a, a really close-up look of just how you know, problematic it is for Australians living with a disability and, and how many barriers they still face? I think it's going to be very difficult, but they have no choice. We can't get to a point where something that is um, less than 10 years old overtakes Medicare, overtakes the pension as these huge cost centres in the budget. Jim Chalmers mentions the NDIS alongside debt repayments growing and the cost of defence and things like that. That's how big this program has become. No one's saying it's not necessary. No one's saying it's not important. But you can't get to a point where we can't afford it. Um, mm. and, and that's why they're looking at low-hanging fruit like um, cutting waste and bigger challenges about how the program is structured, how people who need care actually receive it and how much that costs. And this was also touted as the first well-being budget. Um, but I can't help but notice that poor Australians are, are going to be hit the hardest. There's a, there's the double whammy um, of no real wage growth and sustained high living costs. Um, is this really a well-being budget? The well-being budget thing is a new addition in the budget landscape here in Canberra. Labor's talked about it for a while, looking to emulate countries like New Zealand. It essentially measures some of the... Um, uh, cost centres and some of the spending in that in that wellbeing light. But you're right, there's huge challenges. Energy bills look like they're going to go up 56% in two years. That hits the cost, uh, cost to the poor very uh, high. Inflation, although it's set to stabilise, is really high and that's going to be difficult for people with low incomes and uh, low um, ability to adjust their budgets. There's some good news, you know, wage growth perhaps next year will outstrip inflation, so we'll start getting some increase in wages. But um, as always with the poor in Australia, the federal budget confirms um, difficulty for them in getting to the end of the week, making a small amount of money go a long way. And we haven't seen huge new assistance because the government is scared about the inflation challenge. Mm. It was almost like the worst possible timing to try and bring in this concept of a wellbeing budget because it's a budget where we can't spend lots of money, as you say, because it will stoke inflation. So there's no handouts for people that really need the extra help with their wellbeing. I take a slightly different view, actually. I think if you're going to start measuring well-being, there's probably a, a real need to do it as things get rough and, and mm -hmm. next year and the year after could potentially be worse. So let's have a baseline. Let's know where we are as a country and where the most vulnerable of us are in particular. Um, and let's try and improve the situation for everyone as we go forward. So let's also talk about the 1 million homes that are meant to be built by 2029. So some alarm bells sounded for me when I heard, you know, private investors and super funds would be involved. But also um, it made me question how feasible it all is, given, you know, my family all are tradies and work in construction um, and development. There's already a chronic worker shortage and building supplies are so delayed and so costly. Does this sound like, you know, a nice idea, but... Um, very difficult to actually get up? 
Yeah, governments like to do this, put together a set of uh, announcements and come up with a big round figure like one million homes. I think any progress on uh, social and affordable housing is good. I think any progress on new housing stock for people looking to get into the market is good. But when you drill down into the details of this one million home promise, which, which Jim Chalmers calls a housing accord with state and territory governments and with industry, there's $350 million in this budget um, and they, they think that that's going to contribute to this huge target by the end of the decade. I think that's a potential vulnerability. I think it's going to be very difficult to keep everyone at the table and pulling in the same direction. Using things like superannuation uh, to fund housing is difficult. The return on investment isn't great. Um, so this is going to be challenged. But, but I think Jim Chalmers really wants to work with different stakeholders um, so potentially we'll see progress um, in the next few years. Yeah, it is one of those big numbers where you can get to the end of that period and go, well, you did or didn't get there, and then you potentially have a big broken promise. Uh, I'm not sure what your reservations were about private investors and super funds, Antoinette, in that sector, because I, I think that could be a good thing if they could actually incentivize them to do it. So what are the mechanics of it? How, how can they get super funds and private investors to invest in this space Tom, given if, if there was big money to be made, they'd already be there. Exactly. Labor's been saying that the huge pool of money that the super sector has, um, it would be good for investment in housing. Mm. The sector in response says um, we need good return on investment for our um, account holders. One thing that we talked about before the budget was a potential tweak to tax rules on things like build-to-rent schemes mm. to be able to make those projects um, more profitable for investors at the lower end of the wealth divide. So that would mean that um, they could invest a smaller amount of money and get a better return in things like social and affordable housing um, rather than um, rent to build traditionally in Australia being at the more luxury end of the spectrum. Labor wants to do things like uh, provide housing for frontline workers and for women and families uh, getting away from domestic violence. No one says that's not important but um, the housing market's really congested at the moment. And, and to, as Antoinette says, um, there's huge supply chain disruption and there's um, delays in, in work actually getting underway. But someone's got to do it. So I, I think everybody's agreed to give it a good shot under this new accord. So, Tom, I got the sense that, you know, considering this budget in its political context, it's essentially a halfway budget coming after an election um, ahead of the next full budget in May, which is when we normally get them, that this was starting the tough conversations but not really landing them at this point, where do you think eventually they will cut money from the budget? Which areas and will they be able to bring the structural deficit under control and start paying back the debt? The structural deficit is the um, untouchable problem for governments of the last um, few decades. There isn't a real push yet for tax reform. I think if... Um, Labor and Anthony Albanese are serious about being a big reforming government, about leaving the system better than they found it. There needs to be a conversation about some of the generous tax settings that exist. I'm not just speaking about stage three tax cuts. I think you look at superannuation concessions, you look at trusts, you look at things like um, investor um, tax write-offs, all that kind of stuff. If you could make them slightly less generous across the board, um, in, even potentially um, reform taxes like the GST, um, pull a few different levers, all the while you're trying to cut um, excess spending and rorts and waste in the budget, these things contribute and they add up to real money over time. 
But um, at the moment, Labor's really just trying to get across the books, trying to put its stamp through programs like housing and childcare and aged care. Um, Tom, as you say, next year's budget will be the first full set of figures, the first full set of spending commitments from Labor. And I think that's when you start to get a sense of where this government wants to go over the full three-year term. So that was Tom McElroy, who's the political reporter at the Australian Financial Review in Canberra. Yeah, so Tom, uh, my biggest takeaway from that was in terms of the wellbeing budget, it wasn't about increasing wellbeing. It's it's about having that baseline. Um, and the quick kind of conclusion is wellbeing kind of sucks for most Australians and hopefully things will um, only get better. Listener.